2: a land of strange rituals and savage cruelty. Many of their secrets are still hidden from the eyes of 20th century man. Secrets that protect their dead. Supernatural powers that once released can live again in our modern world. The Mummy, The Living Dead. Bringing terror and death across 4,000 years.
0: It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before.
2: A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24 mile long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster.
1: Dog. In the pantheon of fictional monsters, The Mummy is one of the majors. Starting with The Mummy in 1934, Universal cast in on the popularity of Egypt and mummies with their weird tale of the mummy Imhotep who came back from the dead to try and restore his lost love. There were other Universal Mummy films, though not strictly sequels, that dealt with a different monstrous mummy called Kharis. And then, in 1959, Hammer Studios made a new version of The Mummy in stunning color and based somewhat after Universal's chorus pictures. Hammer's last Mummy picture was in 1971, and then there was something of a dry spell until the 1999 Stephen Summers action-adventure reboot. You may have missed it, but back in 1990, the film version of Tales from the Dark Side did do a segment based on Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's weird Mummy story, Lot 249. Published in 1892, Doyle's tale was one of the first to introduce the idea of a mummy as a walking supernatural murder machine. But other stories going back to the early 1800s have included the idea of mummies' curses. After the opening of Tut's tomb, legends of a terrible curse have been the fodder of many newspaper stories and became something of a legend. But modern researchers have shown that, at a minimum, there's nothing statistically significant about the fate of the people who opened King Tut's tomb. I had been wanting to do a show on mummies for some time and was delighted to finally be able to get noted Egyptologist Dr. Bob Breyer to spend a few minutes talking about this subject. I learned a lot in this interview, and I hope you feel the same. Monster dog. Professor Bob Breyer is a senior research fellow at Long Island University. He is one of the world's foremost experts on mummies and Egyptology and has studied many of the world's most famous mummies. He's the author of several books, the newest of which is titled... Egyptomania, our 3,000-year obsession with the land of the pharaohs. Welcome to Monster Talk. So, while reading about you, I saw that they call you Mr. Mummy. Why not Dr. Mummy?
2: That's an interesting question. I wondered that also, and I'm not sure that it really refers to me. What happened years ago was National Geographic did a TV special about a project of mine where I mummified a human cadaver. The idea was to figure out how the ancient Egyptians did it. So I took a human cadaver and mummified it, in the ancient Egyptian way. And their document was, documentary was called Mr. Mummy. And I wondered, is it, is it referring to me or is it referring to the mummy?
1: <laughs> I actually saw that. That was really interesting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a great project. So what is a mummy?
2: A, a mummy is anything that is preserved soft tissue. So, for example, I mean, to take an extreme case, um, you know these um, cereals you get which have dried blueberries in it? Yes. It's re- that blueberry is really a mummy of a
1: blueberry. So do the um, like the European bog people, do they count as mummies?
2: Sure. They're, they're preserved soft tissue also. There are loads of ways you can make a mummy. Even Evita Peron, for example, is a mummy, and she's been waxed. Her The liquid in her body has been replaced by paraffin, so she's, in a sense, like a really huge candle. But she's a mummy also. So there are all kinds of ways you can have a mummy.
1: So what inspired you to specialize in studying this particular topic?
2: Well, I, I was... Doing a lot of reading on mummies, I was, and, and and I realized that much of what was said by the people writing about mummies wasn't right. They either didn't know their anatomy, they didn't realize the practical problems with what they were saying, so I really just sort of jumped in and, and started writing a book about mummies, and then I, it just took off from there.
1: Most people, I think, probably know mummies from documentaries or movies, and I imagine they usually think about the Egyptian you know, bandaged figures. Before we dig into the Egyptian-style mummies, can you tell the listeners about some of the other mummies you've studied?
2: Well, for example, Lenin is a mummy. Um, Lenin, who was in Red Square, um, was mummified, preserved. His soft tissues are preserved, but he's a different kind of preservation. He's what we would call a wet mummy. Um, he's in formaldehyde, basically a, a solution. Um, and if you look under his suit, he's got a fancy Armani suit on. Under his suit is a, is a wetsuit, which keeps the liquid in, you know, kind of like what divers. wear. So he's a wet mummy. Um, other mummies I've looked at are there's a Chinese mummy, the Lady Dai, um in China, who was also preserved in a solution of mercury. So she is so flexible, you can still move her joints. They did an actual autopsy on her to look at the contents of her stomach. So there are loads of ways you can preserve mummies, and they're, they're all around the world. Um, there's even a kind of mummy called the Chinchorro mummy in, in Chile, where they take, take the skin off the body after the, the person dies, um, remove the flesh, um, pack the bones around with uh, mud, and then put the skin back on. So there's all kinds of mummies around the world.
1: Wow. So why are yeah. people so entranced by mummies?
2: Well, that's something I talk about in the book, Egyptomania. You know, people are fascinated with Egypt, and I think one of the big reasons is mummies. Um, you look at a mummy, an Egyptian mummy... And you're looking at a recognizable person that's 3,000 years old. I mean, if you knew him when he was alive, you would recognize him today. And I think, I think that there's a bit of envy. It's as if the mummy has cheated death. I mean, it's, it's 3,000 years old. It hasn't turned to dust. It's still recognizable. And I think we envy that. So there's a bit of envy in mummies. If, if you watch kids in an Egyptian section of a museum... When they encounter a mummy, it's not a casual encounter. It's not like they look at it and then they go on, run off to the next thing. They will stand there and stare at that mummy for as long as their parents will let them. It's something very special about mummies.
1: I have spent a lot of time recently thinking about uh, how people perfect technologies of various types. And my assumption would be that at, at some point there would be less well-done mummies, and they would become better and better. Uh, is, is that true? Did the, 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 the mummification process get improved over time? Can, is that something we could see in the archaeological record?
2: Well, it's a perfectly reasonable, logical assumption, but it's only partially right. Um, you're right. As mummification proceeded throughout the centuries in Egypt, it got better and better. They realized things like, you have to take out the brain or else the body will rot, You have to do this. You have to do that. So it got better and better. But then, at the end of Egyptian civilization, it got much worse. In what we call the Ptolemaic period, which is when the Greeks were ruling Egypt, the mummies had very fancy wrappings, beautiful, elaborate wrappings. But inside, they were cutting corners, and the mummies were decaying. So Egyptian mummification really went downhill at the end.
1: What was the path to the afterlife for these mummies? Was it the same across history, or did it change? Is that something we know about?
2: Yeah, yeah, we do. They, they left us a lot of religious texts. The Egyptians were resurrectionists. They believed that the body would literally get up and go again in the next world, so you had to preserve it. That's why they did mummification. You would need it all. And even when they, when they pre- preserved the body, if the person had, say, been missing a foot, in this world, they would fashion an artificial foot for him for the next world, so when he got up and went again, he'd be complete. So pretty much for most of Egyptian history, they believed the same thing, resurrection, and the body would get up and go again, and had to be preserved at all costs.
1: So, what is Egyptology? Is it, is it actually a formal division of archaeology, or is it something different? Well,
2: it would, it would fit into archaeology, because archaeology is the study of old things, and Egyptology is the study of all things, only those that are in Egypt. So it is. It's a subcategory of archaeology, and Egyptologists study that aspect in Egypt.
1: And so when you examine a mummy, what is it you're looking for exactly?
2: That was quite a few things, usually. Um, when, when we examine a mummy, and you know, now it's, it's all non-destructive testing. In the old days, when I first got into this uh, field, we used to actually literally unwrap mummies. They were, you know, we'd unwrap a mummy and see what we could figure out. But now with things like CAT scans, you know, and x-rays, we're able to do an awful lot without, without unwrapping. So we don't, un- we don't unwrap anymore. But when I, when I work on a mummy, I'm usually called in to work on a mummy and say, what can you tell us about it, right? Well, the first thing I try to determine is sex, right? It's wrapped. You're not sure if it's a male or female maybe. So we try to determine sex by various, you know, attributes. So, for example, facial features we can tell, you know, the jawbone, the eye, the orbits, the eye sockets. Um, All of these are sex indicators. So we try to figure out the sex of the mummy. Then we try to figure out the age of the mummy, right? We can do that from the bones by seeing whether the tips of the bones have ossified or not, whether there's any indication of arthritis in the spine, all kinds of indicators like that. If it's a kid, we'll look at the dentition to see are all the teeth in, things like that. So we try, after we figure out the sex, we'll go to the age. And then the next thing is we try to find out, what caused, well, what the cause of death was and that's very difficult usually we can't do it you know cuz it's it, it's not not clear cut and then we'll look at things like um what kind of life did this person have so for example from the x-rays i can look at the bones and tell if the person had a good or poor diet um if the bones are well mineralized as we say if the person was a laborer we'll be able to look at his bones and see that oh yes he did a lot of physical labor his his bones are rather thick because as you do more labor um, your muscles get bigger, and that requires the bone to thicken. So we can tell a laborer's bones from a queen's bones, for example. Um, all of these are, are, are important to sort of build up our, our picture of what life was like in ancient Egypt. So mummies are great resources.
1: I want to talk about what's in the canopic jars, but I guess we need to talk about sure. canopic jars first. So hmm? what, what are those?
2: Well, canopic jars, you know, the Egyptians were resurrectionists. They're going to get up and go again in the next world. So you need everything. You need all the parts of your body. But when they mummified, they removed the internal organs. Now, the reason they removed the internal organs is because the internal organs are moist, and bacteria will act on anything that has moisture in it. So, the idea of mummification is to dehydrate the body. So, they took out these moist internal organs the stomach, liver, intestines, kidneys and then they dried them out and they put them in four jars that are called canopic jars. Now, these are jars made out of stone. And they put the organs inside, and the idea is that when you resurrect by magic, you will literally get it all together again, and you will have your organs inside your body, and you will be complete and whole. So the canopic jars were to save the internal organs.
1: The contents of the canopic jars also de- dried out, or were they just put in wet and closed?
2: They were, they were dried out. They were dried out. What would happen is, I think, when you mummify the body, you put them in salts called natron. Um, which is basically like baking soda and table salt, a mixture that occurs naturally in Egypt. And the body would be covered with this, and you'd also put the internal organs there, dry them out, then you put them in the canopic jar, because you don't want the organs to decay either, so you'd desiccate them too.
1: So could you study the stomach contents from those canopic remains?
2: Yes, yes. That's a thing that has not been done, by the way. Very, very, very little has been done with canopic jar remains, because they're usually very hard and brittle by the time we get to them three thousand years later. But it would in principle be possible now, I think, to study the um, stomach contents of, say, for example, the intestines. You know, you've got twenty two feet of intestines, you can see what kind of food's in there. You can see what's in the stomach. Yes, yes, you could do that. It's like it's a little bit like P S I Cairo.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's what <laughs> So I've heard stories about mummies being used in medicine and as fuel for trains. Can you talk about some of the other strange things mummies sure. have been used for? Sure.
2: Yeah. yeah, it is true that mummies were used as medicine. The idea, again, was this, this, you know, you look at a mummy and you think he's cheated death, it's immortality. So in the Middle Ages, pharmacists did use ground-up mummies. They made a powder out of mummy flesh, and it was called mummia. And you would go, you could go into a pharmacy, um, an apothecary, and there'd be a big jar labeled mummia, and you could buy a few grains of that, and you'd put it in a potion or a mixture and drink it, and hopefully this would prolong your life. So mummies were indeed used, even into the, I think, the 18th century, as a, as a medicine. Now, you mentioned mummies being used as fuel for trains. Now, that's a myth. Um, it's, it started by Mark Twain, um, who went to Egypt on a world tour, and he wrote a book called Innocence Abroad. And in that, he talks about being on a train, and he's got his tongue in his cheek when he says... And they were using mummies for fuel, and 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 the the, the pharaohs were much better burning than the, than the, than the commoners. And then he has a little footnote, which everybody misses. The footnote says, "But I'm gullible and will believe anything." So he really didn't mean it. So they, no, no, they didn't use mummies as um, fuel for trains. But Twain was kidding around when he said it, and it became sort of folklore.
1: And I actually read uh, Innocence Abroad* last summer, but I did it as an audio book, and then missed out on the. Um Footnote. The footnote, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's important. That's great though. I love busting myths. So yeah. yeah. Now speaking of the CSI approach to this, it, it seems yeah. like there's one particular case that keeps coming up, and that's King Tut's demise. It reminds me a little bit of Jack the Ripper in that every few years there's another documentary claiming to have the case. But you've done a lot of research in that. What's the latest on, on the case of King Tut?
2: Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, I don't think much has changed. Um, you're right. I, I did some work on it about, I guess, it's probably 15 years ago now, and, and I did a book called The Murder of, of Tutankhamen, um, and in it, I suggested that he may have died by a blow to the back of the head. Now, what I emphasized in my book is it's just a theory. It's not well established. There's, there's something on an x-ray that could be a blow to the back of the head, but it's not clear. And, and there's also some circumstantial evidence that really suggests that Tut was killed because his widow was writing a letter to the Hittite king and saying, I'm afraid, um, things like that. So, so there's a lot of evidence that he, that he might have been murdered, but it's just a the theory certainly hasn't been proven. And more recently, there's been a lot of stuff about, oh, he fell off a chariot, he did this, he did that, and it's just not clear. Uh, that the truth is, we don't know how he died, um, and much of what is said about Tutankhamun is just wild speculation. I mean, it's a good story. Everybody loves to hear about the boy king and all the fabulous treasure they found in his tomb. So he's of great interest, you know. So so I think that's why you get all these theories coming out.
1: For a while, it seemed like everybody who worked in Egypt uh, on this sort of stuff had to interact with Zahi Hawass. Uh, do, do you know him?
2: Yeah, I know Zahi well.
1: And how's he doing? Because it seems like a lot of things have changed since the Egyptian Revolution. Yeah
2: certainly has changed um he's alive and well um he's a private person now he used to be the you know the head of the antiquity service and a minister in the cabinet um but he was under mubarak in, in reign so when mubarak's kicked out zahi's kicked out and now he's a private person he has an office in cairo he's writing his books um he's here in the united states right now giving lectures um so he's doing fine just that he's sort of you know just doing what he loves, um, reading and writing about Egypt, um, but he's not an official member of any organization now, any government organization.
1: As a scientific, uh, skeptical person, I kind of am surprised by how many people don't like him because they think he's hiding the secrets buried under the Sphinx and won't let people dig, so... I have to deal with that a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah, those are New Agers, You know, people yeah. who think there are hidden chambers under the Sphinx and things like that. Bless and their that's hearts. just silly. I mean, the, the, the fun theory was that one person claimed that Zahi had a, a secret chamber, a secret tunnel that went from his bathroom in his office to the secret chambers under the under the Sphinx. Um, it was kind of funny, but no, 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 not, the not sinks true. To the Sphinx. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Pop culture-wise, a lot of the Mummy is either documentaries or horror movies. Are, are, do you enjoy the mummy movies where the mummies get up and walk and do scary things?
2: Oh, I love mummy movies. Um, as a matter of fact, I, when I teach a, I teach a seminar at, at Long Island University on mummies, and um, one of the sections is on the mummy in movies, and we have a little mummy uh, film festival. You know? And so I, so I love the mummy movies. I, I like the older ones more than, more than the more recent ones because sure. the more recent ones are sort of like high-tech mummies, yeah, I, mean, I really love the the 1932 Boris Karloff one, because the mummy has more of a personality. You know, he's even got a girlfriend. Um, so I like I like, I like the, all the mummy movies. There's a really strange one that, I, I mean, I don't even know if you've ever heard of it. You know mummy movies probably, Blake. Pretty well. The Eyes of the Mummy Ma.
1: No, I don't think I've heard that one.
2: Oh, it's a great one to get. Eyes of the Mummy Ma. Um, it's a German one, the Eugen the Mummy Ma. It's a German one, and it's um, about 1908 or so. Oh wow! It's real, it's real, real, real early. It's silent, of course, with with you know cards, and it's so weird that you can't even figure out who the mummy is. You know, the, the, our concept of the mummy as the bandaged horror you know creature is, is fairly recent. In in earlier works about mummies, the mummy is very often a romantic figure. I mean, it, you get all kinds of stories about archaeologists falling in love with mummies. I mean, so mummies are really. You know, viewed early on as as romantic creatures. So, I mean, for for example, there's there's a lot of sheet music from the 1920s about you know songs like "Mummy Mine" and "At the Mummy's Ball" and "Old King Tut Was a Wise Old Nut." <laughs> you know, so you get all of these mummy things. So so yeah, I love the mummy movies.
1: I, I grew up in the in the 70s, and they had the uh, the tour of King Tut's uh, tomb yes. materials, and so and then there was the uh, Steve Martin song. So. Uh,
2: Yeah, that was a classic, right? (laughs) I mean, it really is is brilliant.
1: So, tell us about your book, your new book on Egyptomania.
2: Well, it's a, you know, a bunch of us were talking, we've been talking about this for years, a bunch of Egyptologists, about what is it about Egypt that makes it so special? I mean, it's not like Greece. People go nuts over Egypt, but they don't go nuts over Greece in the same way. Or if you take a kid to a museum, with a large museum, like, say, New York's Metropolitan Museum, the kids will go right to the Egyptian section. They're not going to go to the Greek section. They're not going to go to look at you know, pots and things like that. And what is it about Egypt? So what I try to do in the book, Egyptomania, is talk about what it is that makes Egypt special. And it's things like mummies, hieroglyphs, discovered treasures, stuff like that. But then I try to show different events that fanned the flames of Egyptomania, that really got it going wild, like the opening of the Suez Canal. People became interested in Egypt. And you mentioned Tutankhamun's treasures, touring, I mean, certainly the discovery of Tut's tomb in 1922, that was a sensation that everybody read about in the newspapers for the next 10 years as they excavated the treasures. So I try to talk about events that really get Egyptomania going, and then I show, it's a lot of color photos in the book, I show all the, the tchotchkes, all of the um, objects, the collectibles that were spin-offs, you know, like King Tut cologne or King Tut party mix or... You know, there were beautiful Art Deco jewelry. There was all kinds of things that people, you know, could buy associated with Egypt. So it tries to cover the, the broad spectrum of everything having to do with the fascination with Egypt.
1: That's fantastic. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Cool. And um, there's a question I try to ask all my guests, which is, what's your favorite monster?
2: Well, my favorite monster is the mummy.
1: Excellent. I mean, there's, no,
2: there's no question about it, but, but not all mummies are equal. You know, there, there are some mummies that are better than others, and I like the one in the Boris Karloff movie the best because he's, got, he's more fleshed out, so to speak. He's got more personality. You know what's amazing about that movie? People don't realize it. The mummy is on the screen for less than a minute in the whole movie. He's only in one scene because it took so long to make Boris Karloff makeup, to do his makeup. It took eight hours. So he's only on the screen for one scene, less than a minute, but it's what everybody remembers.
1: Yeah, it, it is surprising. I, I went back and watched it uh, last year, I think, and it's just a lot of the movie. He's not a mummy at all, or it doesn't seem to be. I mean, he is No, the he's, mummy, a,
2: he's but... Artist Bay. He, yeah. He, he, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Thank you so much for coming on to Monster Talk and discussing this uh, fascinating topic with us. A pleasure, Blade. Take care. After talking with Dr. Breyer, I couldn't stop thinking about the idea of mummies being used as medicine. While doing some more research on this topic, I came across the work of Dr. Richard Sugg, and despite quite a busy schedule, he agreed to discuss his fascinating work. Dr. Richard Sugg is a lecturer in Renaissance literature at the Department of English Studies of Durham University in England. His most recent book is titled Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires, The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians. And a link to that book will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk. All right, so uh, can you, uh, first of all, welcome to Monster Talk. Thank you. And um, can you, uh, let's see, let's just start with uh, corpse medicine. Can you tell us what corpse medicine involved and why it took hold and persisted for so long?
0: Yes, corpse medicine involved several key parts of the human body. One was mummy, and the interesting thing here was in the 16th, 17th, 18th century all across Europe – if you uh, asked someone, should you eat people uh, for medicine, the, the answer was not so much yes or no. It was what sort of person should you eat? So there was a, a school of thought that recommended ancient Egyptian mummies, and these were smuggled in quite big quantities uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries back to Europe. And this was used, crumbled, because uh, it was very dry and friable, of course, uh, after all those thousands of years. Uh, it was crumbled into fluid, usually, or onto a plaster, uh, and used against wounds, hemorrhage, bruising, and uh, was was the most favored uh, medicine from pretty much every practitioner or patient uh, for that across Europe. But the other source uh, was very different, uh, and this was the mummy of the Paracelsians, Paracelsus being a big medical reformer or iconoclast of the the period, and his followers gained strength in the 17th century. So if you ask one of them, they would describe as mummy this, the cadaver of a reddish man, because in a man, such a man the blood is believed lighter and so the flesh is better, whole, fresh without blemish, of around 24 years of age, dead of a violent death, not of illness, exposed to the moon's rays for one day and night, but with a clear sky, you should then cut the muscular flesh of this man and sprinkle it with powder of myrrh and at least a little bit of aloe then, and soak it, making it tender finally hanging the pieces in a very dry and shady place until they dry out then it comes to resemble smoke cured meat you'll be pleased to hear without any stench uh the chemist then lastly with spirit of wine or spirit of elderflowers extracts the most red tincture from the flesh itself so of course here the trick was to be pretty cautious about any red tinctures you were offered and where they'd come from so these are two types of mummy one very fresh very new and uh interesting reasons why it should be very new and actually the, the corpse of a young healthy male, uh, dead at execution. Then you have things that are um, not always cannibalistic but involving the corpse. The powdered moss of the human skull, apparently if you leave a human skull unburied, you can often find moss has grown on it after a time. And this powdered moss of the human skull, along with powdered blood, uh, was a big thing for hemorrhaging, for, for bleeding. Then you have fat, again not strictly cannibalistic or you could argue that perhaps it would be absorbed in some cases. The fat was used for rheumatism, for gout uh, and for wounds and later on when it became a problem it was used uh, against rabies. Uh, Blood was a big one, very big one and in some ways was the the poor person's corpse medicine because it was relatively cheap. You would get this at an execution scaffold. Seconds perhaps uh, after the head had been severed from the body, uh, you might be holding a cup for which you'd paid the executioner the right and drinking this blood pretty, pretty much hot and certainly very, very fresh uh, as a cure for epilepsy, very taboo disease of the time. Again, if you ask a different person, they tell you a different sort of blood in this case. So Robert Boyle, the father of chemistry, uh, was a big fan of distilled blood and believed it was pretty much a deathbed remedy, a panacea for somebody who seemed to be on their last legs. And he claims a case where he, he succeeded with a very sick, gentle woman using distilled blood, which I think he gave to her under another name. He wouldn't always tell his patients what they were getting in these cases. Uh, Then you've got interesting one, distilled skull, distilled skull, uh, along with various other ingredients. Powder of the skull was distilled um, and famously done by uh, Charles II. So much associated with Charles II, made it in his own laboratory, took it as his own standard medicine, uh, that it became known as the King's Drops. This was a general cure-all. It was the very first thing Charles reached for automatically when he woke up feeling ghastly uh, in February 1685 and um, was basically confined to his deathbed after this. Uh, it was also used for diseases of the head with that kind of logic they tended to have because it was from the skull. Um, we found it being used um, by a gentlewoman lady, Anne Dormer, uh, in the 1680s as a kind of antidepressant, a miserable marriage, and would mix up the king's drops with chocolate and try and cheer herself up. Wow. So, don't try any of this at home is the, the usual <laughs> warning.
1: Well, if you're king, you can get skulls pretty easy, though. It's just off with their head, and Uh I need need a remedy. (laughs) Yes. So how long did this practice last?
0: The earliest examples we have go back to Roman times, where you might find an epileptic patient drinking blood from a wounded or a slain gladiator. Uh, in, in the Roman uh, gladiatorial contests, but we get much more trace well into the Christian period. So um, Albertus Magnus, for example, uh, was uh, a Christian saint eventually and considered quite a big scientist in the 13th century, and he would distill blood as a young man's blood in particular as a, a remedy for palsy and as a panacea again. But then it really gets going interestingly. In the 16th century in the continent, it, it gets to Britain like a lot of things a little bit later um, and is probably interestingly at its height um, as the scientific revolution the period from the 1660s onwards with people like Robert Boyle uh, and Hooke and so forth and of course Newton um, so actually despite often being loosely referred to as a medieval phenomenon it's probably at its strongest commercially scientifically um, and in terms of prestige uh, around the time of the scientific revolution which also caused Charles II's time and it's hard to be absolutely sure why it was so popular but one central reason must be that you didn't want just any old body for medicine you wanted the peak of god's creation you wanted the absolute zenith of uh of the created world. And this was the human body which for all its sins was was a divine masterpiece and so yes you you were using the human body is as, as God's finest piece of work, but also you were probably, in a lot of people's belief, and I think certainly the belief of epileptic, poor, ordinary people, as scaffolds. You were using the force of life, probably the force of the soul. A very strong belief for a long time that, that the soul was in the blood or very closely tied up with the blood so of course drinking fresh blood of of a male who was believed actually at the time believe it or not to have a stronger soul than a woman probably um and who died healthy and who died young you know hadn't died of sickness There was nothing wrong with their body or soul this was this was considered very very potent um and then it would just be a question of whether you you know thought you should have it fresh or distill it or whatever it It might be. Probably commercial interests played a part. You know, unscrupulous people who simply didn't believe in the medicine would keep it going because it was was very, very profitable uh, after a time.
1: So I've seen a lot of remedies that seem to have effects, whether there's any uh, pharmaceutical benefit. Is there any known reason why this would work? Was there anything about this that had real chemical properties?
0: some did some didn't i think um and the power of belief is enough you know if you believe that powerfully in christianity that you would for example martyr yourself um then you probably believe enough in the soul to to believe that it's going to work but some things did work kind of by accident basically um moss uh powdered moss or powdered blood uh, i bumped into a, a forensic pathologist uh one day and was talking to him about this subject and he said oh yeah um any powder will stimulate the coagulation mechanism he said when he was a kid his brother cut his head badly his mother put powdered coffee on it and it worked fine so so you've got an accidental um efficacy there one other one which is fairly obvious to us now is is fat it was used as an ointment it was used to rub on people who'd got rheumatism who'd got gout Take take your pick, you know, use sheep fat or whatever sort of fat you like, um, or tiger balm nowadays. It, it's going to work in terms of warming the body, improving the circulation, and so on. Um, interesting one is, is the king's drops. They sometimes mixed it with hartshorn, horn, which, of course, became a, a key ingredient later on, the powdered horn of, of a deer became a key ingredient in um, smelling salts which of course do a violent effect kind of jolt somebody away because they've been punched or injured or whatever and um, we've seen um people taking the king's drops as an antidepressant but the most striking example of its efficacy is when you'd want to be warned of if anyone ever offered you the king's drops in a glass of wine uh, charles was a big one for this and charles had a private secretary chiffinch who was a, a pretty unscrupulous character and spied for charles he would get People drunk to wheedle out their secrets for Charles, and he found that it was more efficacious to put King's drops in their wine to get them really drunk. And uh, a lawyer of the time, Roger North, um, was actually at Windsor with the King uh, when Chiffinch gave him wine with the King's drops, and he was never so drunk in his whole life. He he staggered out of um, the uh, the house and fell down in a bush in the park and came to about six hours later with not a clue what had happened in the intervening time the the other one is is blood which it's hard to be sure but essentially because if you're swallowing blood actually you're you're swallowing it as food um, you're metabolizing it and it's a very potent high energy um, source of, of food in that sense and when they told people at the scaffold to take blood for epilepsy the cure that you often see associated with it is you should then run as fast as you can run until you drop and um, this was a period in which people didn't run unless they had to. There was no leisure or kind of health running. So this was quite a big deal. And um, you wonder if the body is becoming uh, kind of manic. Um, you feel very, you know, overwired with all this fresh blood inside you, and then you run very fast.
1: That's interesting. So were there any harmful ingredients?
0: There probably were in some cases. One medical historian has argued that, um, rather than curing things with these bits of powdered mummy, they were actually spreading the plague uh, in the early modern period, which was, of course, a huge killer across Europe, um, 17th and in some cases in the 18th centuries. Um, this wouldn't have been helped by the fact that mummy was so profitable as a, a commodity that when people couldn't easily get hold of the Egyptian mummies, they baked up the flesh of pretty much anything or any body they could get hold of, camels, dead beggars, dead lepers, and added some convenient spices and so forth to give it the, the rough impression of real mummy. And uh, yeah, if this stuff was being traded across Europe, you can well imagine that you know, it's a fairly fresh body, mm. which perhaps died of <laughs> leprosy or something else.
1: <laughs> How widespread was this?
0: It was immensely widespread. Um, it, it was a, a huge commodity, systematic kind of industry, very profitable, Uh, the perhaps most startling index of that sense of profit comes from the 18th century, so quite late on, when some people, from about the middle of the 18th century, are turning against this. Nonetheless, you can still see... human skulls whole in uh, chemist shops in London and they'll have moss on them so you you go in and you don't just credulously buy you know something that's supposed to be a human skull or moss of the skull if you can afford it you buy the whole thing you're quite sure you're getting real skull real uh, moss of the skull Uh, these skulls allegedly um, from the mid-17th century in particular came from Ireland Uh, And this was for two reasons. One was that the Irish were slaughtered uh, in great numbers from the 16th century onward. And they were left unburied because everybody would be slaughtered as a tactical policy. So there was nobody to bury the bodies. The skulls were necessarily left uh, in the air and were easy to to get hold of. You didn't have to dig them up. Ironically, however, the Irish rebelled against this and, um, in fact, massacred large numbers of English settlers in 1641 so you didn't actually know really whether you were getting an English skull or an Irish skull after after 1641 Uh, and they were certainly very very popular to the extent that the English imported them over into England for home use uh, and then exported them on into Germany in particular for uh foreign use and there was an import duty on uh, Irish skulls of one shilling a head until late into uh, the 18th century. Other indexes of, of popularity, uh, are quite interesting. You have a character called Ursin, a French uh, nobleman in 1580, he falls off his horse and mummy is your standard remedy uh, for bruising, bleeding, wounds, etc. And he's treated by a big French surgeon, Amboise Paré. He's a, he's a big figure in the history of medicine. Uh, and Paré doesn't believe in mummy. Only he says he doesn't think it works. He gives his own remedy, different things. Ursan well, wakes up, comes to consciousness, asks, what did Paré do? Paré says, I did this, etc. And Ursin complains, why didn't you give me the real stuff? why don't you give me mummy? A bit like someone complaining they want to get antibiotics uh, nowadays. Other uh, uses of mummy show how much demand there must have been for it because if you could afford it, if you were noble, uh, mummy was used as fish bait and it was actually used as medicine for uh, the hawks of sporting gentlemen and aristocrats all across Europe um, in the 16th and 17th centuries. So yes, um, medicine of choice for a lot of people and very very profitable.
1: I was going to ask uh, when did this practice die out but it occurred to me that it's still going on in some places in the world.
0: Yeah, two to points there broadly I suppose. It, it died out only in phases in um, Europe because like a lot of things it was used by the, the poor, the illiterate um, long after the educated turned against, it, turned against it around the mid-18th century but it was still being used by some genteel doctors and patients about um, 1800. On the other hand, if you were in Bradford in 1847, uh, you could have heard a story of a man getting powdered skull for his epileptic daughter. If you're in Ruarban in Wales, you could have heard a woman begging the church sexton to uh, let her have a skull, which she grated like ginger, I think the phrase was. Um, again, probably for something to do with epilepsy or diseases of the head. Um, and. Um, The blood cures that were used mainly in uh, northern European countries, Scandinavia, are still going on in Denmark in the 1860s. Uh, We have a recorded case from Marburg in Germany, uh, blood being used at the scaffold in 1865, so pretty late on there. Some people, I suppose, as controversial, would say that now uh, blood transfusions shouldn't be detached from this kind of thing or taken so lightly. Some people are um, hostile to blood transfusions placenta is is eaten um by all animals pretty much i think as a natural kind of um post-delivery uh, habit and a lot of humans do eat placenta a lot of mothers do um it's very nourishing apparently um i'm tried it myself but there are recipes for smoothies and uh, <laughs> on the internet uh if you're uncertain about your supper tonight um the the other thing um that, that's very big just a couple of years ago of course and it's possible this is still occurring uh secretly is this use of chinese uh powdered baby capsules I and mean, it sounds almost mythic and yet it it seems well documented um that in south korea uh customs officials seized um you know thousands at least of these these capsules made from dead babies uh which are similar kind of beliefs about their efficacy, you know, that they're a kind of cure-all, that they're very good for stamina, um, and uh, perhaps reflects very distantly that sense that you are consuming the force of life um, in the Renaissance, that you're consuming the force of the soul in that case.
1: Wow. And I I guess um, there's still sort of sympathetic magic happening in Africa uh, that involves uh, body parts. Apparently it doesn't pay to be an albino uh, right
0: now. Oh, I have heard that. I have heard that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so.
1: <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> well, we've been talking to Richard Sugg, author of Mummies, Cannibals, and Vampires The History of Corpse Medicine from the Renaissance to the Victorians. A uh, link to his book will be in the show notes. But, Richard, before you go, um, a question we'd like to ask is What's your favorite monster? Yes.
0: My favorite monster, I think, is actually the poltergeist. And so if you take to bits the word monster, it means loosely a kind of a hybrid you a know, mix of two things that shouldn't go together, uh, whether it's the living and the dead or part human, part animal. But the word also strictly, means means to show as in the word demonstrate or the word monstrance when you hold up the host in, in the monstrance to show it to the congregation. And poltergeists are my, my latest research project, uh, it's hard to know exactly what they're trying to show us. Uh, but the phenomena are very strange, I think, and there's there's a lot to be learned from that, so this is currently uh, my my favorite monster, I would say.
1: It's a very interesting topic. I will have to have you back on to discuss it when you have more time.
0: That would be great. Thank you.
1: Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and you've been listening as I interviewed Dr. Bob Breyer and Dr. Richard Sugg on the topic of mummies and corpse medicine. Hopefully the topic wasn't as dry as you might have expected. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed in this show are those of the hosts and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. And may the spit of a thousand camels fall upon he who suggests otherwise. Next episode, we'll be revisiting the science advisors of the $10 million Bigfoot bounty and find out what they thought about the final product. Hopefully, we'll also be having our snake episode soon. I think we're almost ready to get that recorded. That's a show I've been trying to do since, the, since before the very first episode of Monster Talk. Thanks for those who have donated to support the show. Thank you so much for the recent generous donations of Paul Komorowski, D.R. Crane, Alexander Eisenminger, Sharon Hill, Robert Smith, Chase Hansel, and Chris Steinbeck. I really appreciate the support. Check out our show notes at monstertalk.org. Please take a couple of minutes to leave us a review on iTunes and be sure and share this episode with anyone you think might like to learn about mummies, the history of medicine, or monsters. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you for listening. That you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally. Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content.
0: hi
2: Okay, like here's a quarter. I'll bet he
0: means that old Egyptian coin.
1: As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China